Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this webinar at the Heritage Foundation today. Um, I'm pleased to co-host our event today with Daniel Pletka, a Foreign and Defense Policy Studies um, Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and also my partner on a project on UN reform that we are uh, proceeding with uh, and have been doing for a couple of months now and are going to hopefully continue for quite a while. Today, we're we <laughs> Today we are privileged to host Ambassador Kelly Kraft. Ambassador Kraft is the permanent representative of the United States of America to the United Nations, and she has served in that post since September of 2019. The U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. has a broad array of responsibilities, and Ambassador Kraft has been critical in helping advance U.S. efforts to address a number of key issues at the United Nations, including Syria, the Iran nuclear deal, COVID-19, and reform of U.N. peacekeeping. Today, Ambassador Kraft will discuss UN, uh, the U.N. Human Rights Council. Created in 2006, the UN Human Rights Council is supposed to be the premier human rights body in the world. Sadly, it all too often fails to live up to the standards and the principles that it is supposed to embody. The world's worst human rights abusers regularly get elected to the, sit on the UN Human Rights Council, and that body singles out Israel for extraordinary scrutiny that is given to no other nation in the world, no matter how or tragic its human rights situation is. For well over a year, the Trump administration sought to reform the UN Human Rights Council. Unfortunately, it failed to get enough support from the other member states uh, to enact those reforms. And as a result, the Trump administration left the UN Human Rights Council in 2018. Many people have criticized that decision and have called for the U.S. to re-engage the council. Last year, former Vice President Biden expressed his preference to rejoin the council and to, quote, work to ensure that that body truly lives up to its values, unquote. But we've been down that path before. The Obama administration tried to reform the Human Rights Council, as did the Trump administration. Be, uh, rejoining the body before reforming it is simply going to put the U.S. back inside another flawed institution. The council is broken, and it needs to be fixed. But How? Ambassador Kraft is here today to discuss and answer that very question, and she will start with some prepared remarks today, and then she'll ha uh, we'll have a discussion between myself and Daniel Pletka uh, to conclude our event. So with no further ado, let me welcome Ambassador Kraft to the stage. Today we gather in the midst of sacred holiday seasons. It is the fourth day of Hanukkah, the third week of Advent, it's Nativity Fast. Each of these faith traditions and the many others in their own way remind us of the universality of the human condition and the fundamental connections with each other. That is why this is a perfect time together to talk about human rights. I would like to share some thoughts illuminated by my experiences as the U.S. UN Ambassador. Earlier this year, Brett and Danielle published a thoughtful paper on the urgent need for reform at the Human Rights Council in order to earn U.S. re-engagement. And their recommendations came to life for me as I recalled a number of heart-wrenching interactions I've had in the past year and a half. While at the Syrian border, 
there was a man pleading for my attention. The security detail was quite worried that he was a threat. But in listening to his message through the interpreters, we came to understand that his message was actually an urgent plea. It was a plea from a refugee, a plea from a father, a plea just pleading for his family, for the family's future. In such a profound way, I recall my visit to Malakal, a town in South Sudan. There I met with a group of women from several different tribes. Many have walked hours just to be heard. Widows taking care of orphans in their war-torn villages. Through tears, anguish, and discomfort, they trusted me with their innermost humiliating truths. That their bodies had been used and abused as a commodity by the warring factions a transient stop for the different militias traveling across the country. During my time in Colombia, I learned of a young pregnant woman who walked all the way from her home in Venezuela in order to receive proper prenatal care and protect her unborn child after the Maduro regime had destroyed the Venezuelan healthcare system. In Bogota, I met a young Venezuelan man who was deaf and walked for days to fill out a simple application to work at a hamburger joint. Through sign language and an interpreter, he explained how the Maduro regime had destroyed his beloved country. And then there are the millions of Iranians suffering under the impression, oppressive regime of the last several months. A journalist, a wrestler, and thousands of protesters were killed or imprisoned because they want a government that represents their dreams and ambitions, a government that turns away from terrorism and sowing chaos in the world. And I'll never forget meeting with the families of those wrongfully detained in Iran. Two of the American hostage, Bob Levinson's, his two children, joined us in a very cramped hotel room. I just want to set the scene. It was a very cramped hotel room with families, loved ones, who are wrongfully detained in Iran. All they wanted was just a glimpse of hope. And what brought them together was they all are the same members of a club, and that's a club that none of us would ever seek to belong. This was one of my very first meetings, just three days into my posting as the USUN ambassador. From that moment on, these families made an indelible mark on my soul, and sadly, I know that their profound sadness is shared by thousands of Iranian families who too wonder about the fate of their loved ones. Contrast, if you will, these moments with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which calls for the advent of a world in which human beings enjoy the freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear, and what has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people. Sadly, the UN's organization charged with the protection and promotion of human rights, the Human Rights Council, includes the voices of the very human rights violators it was designed to counter. The Bush administration correctly predicted in 2006 that the newly formed council would face the same problems that plagued the defunct Commission on Human Rights. The Obama administration tried hard to reform the council from within, but unfortunately that didn't work. From the first day, President Donald Trump worked hard to try to address the council's problems. But when nothing changed, we made the principal decision to withdraw. The Human Rights Council has given us no reason to reconsider our decision. In its current composition and direction, the Council is failing to live up to its name. It is an insult to the millions around the world who, sub who are subjected to oppression and prosecution for seeking to employ 
their God-given rights. It is an affront to human right defenders craving support from the United Nations. Let us call for a reformed process to address the Council's flaws shaped by three core objectives. Stricter membership criteria, improved elections, and elimination of bias. First, it is self-evident that members of a body dedicated to promoting human rights should not include nations with appalling human rights records. Among the 15 members elected to the Human Rights Council in October was China. One needs to look no further than China for egregious examples of human right abuses. And the outrage stands in stark contrast to Taiwan, a true force for good in the world. You don't need to take my word for it, or even the distinguished scholars at AEI and Heritage. Look at the Brown groundbreaking report of the New York Times. And you know when AEI, Heritage, and the Times agrees on something, you know this must be serious. The haunting lead. The students book their tickets home at the end of the semester, hoping for a relaxing break after exams and a summer of happy reunions with their family in China's far west. Instead, they would soon be told that their parents were gone, their relatives had vanished, and their neighbors were missing, all of them locked up in an expanding network of detention camps built to hold Muslim ethnic minorities. There must be means of denying such countries membership unless their human rights practices improve. For example, any member state currently under investigation or sanctioned by bodies like the Security Council, international labor organizations, or Human Rights Council could be prevented from running for council seats. This would have prevented the sickening scenario that happened last year when Venezuela was elected to the council after a mere month that the council had a fact-finding mission on human rights abuses in Venezuela. To think about this just makes me sick as I held the hands of the Venezuelans on the border in Colombia who had fled to escape the Maduro regime's abuses. Another option is for the General Assembly or even the Security Council to update and maintain their own ineligibility list. We know that human rights abuses and threats to international peace and security often go hand in hand. Current voluntary hearings run by our consortium of NGOs has been a positive step and we should build on this tool. Thorough public examination of human rights records go some distance towards discouraging nations who only want to join the Council so they can suppress such an examination. Second, elections for seats on the Council must be credible and they must be competitive. For too often, regional slates are uncontested. Backroom dealings determines which countries ends up on regional ballots. Options to improve the situation include requiring slates to feature more candidates than open seats or providing none of the above option that results in new candidates being proposed if it is selected. In the most recent election held in October, only one regional slate was contested, and that's no election at all. Another idea to consider would be to increase the threshold for election from an absolute majority to a two-thirds majority. This will make it harder for human rights abusers to win seats on the Council. Third, we must deal with the insanity at the center of the Human Rights Council, persistent and egregious anti-Israel bias. Israel is the only country singled out by the Council for scrutiny under what is known as Agenda Item 7. No other country is targeted in this way, not the murderous Assad regime in Syria, not the disastrous 
Maduro regime in Venezuela and not the Chinese Communist Party responsible for abuses. Not Russia, Cuba, or North Korea. Yeah, Israel. Only Israel. Again, Item Jet 7 has a single purpose, to provide a platform for nations to target Israel. It does nothing to advance dialogue, human rights, or the cause of peace, and it must go. Many of you are thinking, why now? Well, especially because this is a season of light. Responsible nations of this world must come together to fix, at long last, the UN Human Rights Council. Because any further delay betrays the victims of torture in Venezuela and the more than one million religious minorities facing detention in China who have to bitter the irony of watching the government who abused them sit on the Human Rights Council. Because I cannot turn away from the people in Venezuela, Syria, and South Sudan, those very people that I met. And I cannot turn away from the mistreatment of the Taiwanese, the Hong Kongers, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, the Rohingyas, and many, many more. I'm not here to dictate a singular approach as much as I am here to say that the time is now and the United States should leverage the current position outside the council to lead the charge for reform before we consider rejoining. And I will work tirelessly with my successor to help in any way possible to uphold our shared values, to honor the memory of those murdered by abusive regimes and to provide hope to those right now suffering the United States demands an effective Human Rights Council that lives up to its name. Tonight, our Jewish brethren will light a candle on the menorah. In doing so, they pay tribute to their ancestors who overthrew tyranny and overcame persecution around 170 B.C. So let us, millennial later, all light candles in our own way, knowing that the desire for an end to the human rights abuses and peace on earth is within us all. And let us resolve to rebuild the institutions of government that can restore the fundamental tenets of our common humanity so that every one of us may enjoy the full potential of peace and security in this world. Thank you. Let me thank, first of all, you, Ambassador Kraft, and, and Heritage for, for co-hosting this. I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, like everybody, on Zoom, uh, and I've done a lot of events on Zoom but you made a really powerful statement and I was really happy to see it in person and I was only sorry that it would have sounded paltry for all six bemasked individuals socially distanced in this room to applaud, but I, really I, I applaud everything you say. Um, let me start with a, a question for you because this remains to me one of the mysteries that you're confronting. Um, you laid out what the problems are with the Human Rights Council it was, they're, they're very similar to the problems of its predecessor, the Human Rights Commission, uh, which the Secretary General at the time himself denounced for its failure to live up to its own lofty ambitions. I get that there are different philosophies in the tent, outside the tent, about how to fix it. What I don't get is how we are so isolated in our effort to effect this change Surely your colleagues in the, you know, in the UK, another permanent uh, representative on the Security Council, in France, both of whom were just elected to the Human Rights Council, surely our friends in Western Europe, our friends in Japan, South Korea, Australia, and so many other countries have to agree with every word you just uttered. Where are they? You know, that, that's a very good question. And, and once again, thanks, 
to the two of you for hosting me. You know, I, I'm going to focus on the positive, and, and you mentioned the UK and Germany, and, and Germany and the UK this year, as in last year, during the third committee at the General Assembly, worked very, very hard on, on organizing a statement, calling out China for their oppression of the Uyghurs. We were able to have 39 countries sign on, many of which had been really receiving a lot of threats from China throughout the year, the ones that had not signed on last year, that did sign on this year. So I look to areas outside the Human Rights Council because, you know, I grew up where my father said, if you are part of a group that has poor choices, poor behavior, in this situation, you know, rogue behavior, then you're complicit. So I would rather be outside holding people accountable with Germany, with the UK, with other like-minded countries. And we are going to be building upon this particular statement in the third committee. And we've included Hong Kong. We've included Taiwan. And we have received a lot of feedback and are continuing to work very hard for this coming year. And hopefully that my successor will take this on and we will be able to engage more countries because, you know, these countries, whether they be small, you know, Albania, these smaller countries that are receiving threats for signing on to, to this statement. So I, I find that until we have transparency and accountability, until these countries that are actually the ones who are abusing the rights of others are removed from the council or change their behavior, then there's really no room for, for the United States. Thank you, Ambassador. That was great. I really enjoyed your remarks, um, and I agree with Danny. It was um, it's nice to hear such a firm statement coming from uh, a U.S. official coming, and and the specificity I liked as well in terms of the reforms that you're offering, because in the past we've heard about U.S. efforts to try and reform the U.N. Human Rights Council, but we haven't heard exactly what the shape or the the direction or the makeup of those reforms were, and so it was nice to hear uh, that specificity. One thing that you mentioned in your, as, as part of your criteria was to um, exclude countries that are under scrutiny for human rights issues by the Security Council or by the Human Rights Council. Um, but the response that I've always heard in the past from human rights organizations or from other countries is that um, the UN uh, Human Rights Council is a UN body and it needs to be reflective of all the member states. The idea that even the worst countries deserve representation on the Human Rights Council. Now, I can disagree with that, but how do you respond to countries that come forward and say, no, we can't exclude anybody no matter how bad because this, this has to be a, a, a UN body that is reflective of the membership? Yeah, I think we have to explain our ideal of, of a Human Rights Council. Can you imagine that we're in our 75th year at the United Nations? 74 years ago when the commission was founded, those founding members, can you imagine what they would think today? What a Frankenstein-like you know, council that we have now. And you know, I firmly believe this starts at the top with the secretariat. I mean, I think we need to hold the secretariat accountable. We need to hold the very institution that houses all of the different organizations accountable. You know, what I say to countries when they ask is, you know, I don't want to be part of something that looks as if I'm condoning it. You know, yes, we want we want to work as a multilateral institution, but we also find that working unilaterally, whether it's through sanctions, whether it's through calling out individuals, what, which is what I do in the council, I try to do this almost every day that we have issues. 
know, that's the way we prefer to work. And until we see a change, and it has to be a real change, we have to see a change of behavior. We have to see a change of the three criteria. And we need more like-minded countries to stand up with us. You know, this is not a popularity contest. I don't need the cheerleading section. But what I do need are the countries that I know feel the same way that have come to me privately to, to stand up. So you are relentlessly positive. Um, <laughs> and luckily, I am the yang to your ying because I'm pretty relentlessly negative. So I'm going to persist at you for a second. Uh, we just had an election in the Security Council. You talked, I think, very clearly uh, about a potential reform option. In the, in the piece that, that uh, Brett and I authored, which you very kindly gave a shout out to, uh, we, in fact, detail some of the, the, some of the options that are available. None of them are very drastic. You know, none of them involve a wholesale uh, jettisoning of the council itself. It, they would even uh, potentially succumb to the anti-Israel bias because they could exclude those who are under investigation. Nonetheless, notwithstanding the statement made by you, by the United States in pulling out, by the Obama administration in trying to exact reforms, by the Bush administration before it, we just had an election. It was done under the procedures that we've seen, as you say, uncontested in, in all but one instance. And while there are plenty of egregious examples I can point to, the one that you focused on intensely is the one that I think deserves our attention. 75 years after the end of World War II, all of these nations turned to each other and they said, never again. And yet there are concentration camps of, of minorities, religious minorities in China, the Uyghurs. You've spoken about it frequently. How does it happen that, for example, our friends in the European Union do not collectively stand against Chinese membership because they didn't take a position against Chinese membership and candidacy for the council. Is it just fear? Is it, is it trade? Is it money? Speculate in your very kind and genteel way what, about what might be causing this. I think, I think you just hit on very, two very important areas. It's, uh, a lot of it's money, a lot of it's trade. You know, they work the system. They, this is a responsibility of, 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 I believe, that we need to really shine a light on the transparency and the accountability and making certain that, that we find like-minded countries and more Americans to put into the UN system because China is becoming more and more engaged through their contributions, through their, their levels. Therefore, you know, they're not doing this to help the UN system. It's only to to find a way to manage and find a way to control. So when the countries that are like-minded on other issues with us are approached by China with their Belt and Road, which I'm hoping that can be broken, you know, it's hard to say no. Instead, you know, our development fund, we need to go in, is which is what we do, and we share ways that are going to uplift the country economically. We're not predatory lenders. And what China is doing is they, they are making empty promises. They're predatory lending. And it's really difficult for the small countries. You look at the Pacific Islands, especially during COVID. You look at the other, the other you know, less emerging economies. And here comes China with all these big promises. And of course, when your tourism has, is below, you know, it's basically nothing in, in the Pacific Islands because of COVID, 
of course you're going to allow China to come in and build a new runway or build the schools, whatever it may be. Now, after the fact, then you, you're very, you regret this. And that is where, you know, I'm always, we're always on standby. I never want to say I told you so, because at that moment, those countries are desperate. So I think that's where, as the U.S., we have to come in after the fact, and we just have to teach them, we have to teach them the right way. And that's something that I've been trying to do, is, is using that time during COVID to reach out to all of the countries, especially the ones that normally do not hear from a U.S. U.N. ambassador. And they will tell me, you know, we're fine. China just sent X, Y, and Z. And so I'll just listen, and then you have a little conversation, and you realize it's basically it's predatory lending, and they're going to own them. And so then that is when I come in and say, well, how, why don't we provide you with a better way or provide you with rebuilding your schools so that you can educate your children, not bringing in prisoners to build your schools? where you're not employing people in your country and then leaving, leaving you empty. So there is no economic increase. There is no, is no incentive there for that country. So, you know, I, you know, I may be kind, but I'm very firm, and I found that when you do deal with these countries, that if you go in, I've never seen it work when you just go in there and, and tell them that you're our way or the highway, that doesn't work. And I think they just need to, be, they just need to understand that, that China... They're only in the UN system for themselves. I mean, you know, that, that's the only reason. And I think a lot of people are seeing that now. If you see, you know, Italy with the Belt and Road, I think they are now starting to see that that Belt and Road is broken. And, you know, it just takes time, and they will come around. I just hope during COVID that some, it's not too late for the economic recovery of some of these smaller countries. So as we look forward, um, one of the lamentable uh, things that has happened in American foreign policy over the last few decades. It's not a Republican fault or a Democratic fault. It's a, it, it's a, it has become a bad habit. Um, we join, we leave. We join, we leave. And if I can use a popular expression that my children have come to hate, we have, um, we have gone from virtue signaling um, in democratic administrations, see, we're part of it, to virtue signaling in Republican administrations, see, we're out of it. And as we look now to a, a, a transition uh, where, you know, if, if confirmed, there will be a new United Nations ambassador, and uh, the president-elect, Joe Biden, and, uh, and Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris have said that the United States is going to rejoin the council. One of the things that I actually wrote last week, and I think that this is a view shared by a lot of people in the human rights community, uh, is that it would be foolish of the incoming administration to squander the leverage that the Trump administration has built in simply rejoining for nothing. That perhaps it's time to end this cycle of in and out and in and out and instead work together, Republicans and Democrats, Americans, to help secure the kind of reforms that would be meaningful to the Syrians and the Sudanese and the Chinese and the Iranians and the Cubans and the Venezuelans and the North Koreans, and we could go on for a while, right? all of whom at one time or another have enjoyed pride of place on the Human Rights Council. So if you have words of wisdom for your successor, what do you think that 
uh, in this case, uh, the administration has signaled it as a, a woman. So what do you think that should be her priorities as she looks forward in seeking to achieve something meaningful and long-lasting? Not for us. Forget us. We're okay. But for the people who really look to the Human Rights Council to be saved. So that's that. Uh, thank you, because it is something that I do plan on discussing with my successor. Um, you know, we need to build. What I have done is I have built upon my predecessors. So I've built upon what they have done. I have learned from their mistakes. Um, each of us have, I truly believe, have tried to demand transparency and accountability because we have a, an obligation. No matter the party, you have an obligation to the American taxpayers. This is not a partisan issue. You know, if you look at, you know, from 2006, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, now the Trump administration, we have all learned from one another. And, I mean, what's really important is that we, we build upon what we have learned, that we focus on what we are doing outside of the Human Rights Council that has worked. You know, I would hope that the, that the incoming administration would understand that we have not just been partisan. We are not. We, are, we have learned from the Obama administration that they tried to fix it. They were unsuccessful. Why would we go in and try the same reforms when we know that it hasn't worked? And I know that they, too, will, will look at this and know that this is not partisan. I mean, there are people out there that don't care what the party is. There are people without the voices out there. We, you know, we want to take care of the American people first, our peace and security in the United States. And obviously, we are also as secure as our countries that are in conflict. So we want to make certain that those countries also are held accountable. But we have, you know, you've got Iran, you've got the, the, the regime there. We have got, we must get a handle on this rogue regime. We care about the Iranian citizens. You have the Communist Party of China. We care about the Chinese citizens. We care about the American Chinese here in our country. But we could go, just like you said, on and on in Venezuela and the Rohingyas. I mean, we have so much conflict in the world. And obviously, it all kind of the roads do lead back to Iran and their rogue regime. And I think we just really need to focus on what both of our administrations have, have found to be true. And you can't turn a blind eye to the conflicts. And I would just hope that, that my successor, and I know that she, will, she or he will look back and they'll build upon all that have come, you know, before her. Uh, I guess one of the questions I would have uh, for you, and this might be our final question given the time, uh, is over the past year and a half or so that you've been in, in place, um, over the past, about the, I guess about the same time that Ambassador Bremberg has been in Geneva, um, what is what has I guess surprised you most in terms of your efforts to work with like-minded countries to reform the system, advance transparency and accountability, not just in in Geneva or in New York, but also to reform the Human Rights Council, to reform other bodies, to uh, to try and improve protections for staff in in the UN system. So, what is, what has surprised you most about um, about that effort and the inability it seems to get traction on that? You know, what has really surprised me the most is that what matters is developing a relationship with the small countries. And that is something that, that George W. Bush, the advice he gave me when I first uh, said yes to, to becoming the U.S. UN ambassador. I went and spoke to George, George W. Bush. I spoke to Susan Rice. I spoke to a lot of, of the, the previous ambassadors. And I wanted to know George W. Bush because of his dad. And I, you know, really had that respect. And 
he said, you know, you really need to reach out to the small countries because you don't want to go to them in time of need on the Security Council, whether it's Niger, whether it's any of the countries, for a vote. And that'd be the first time they've ever heard your voice on the phone. And especially during COVID, the first time truly a voice on the phone or on a, a Zoom call. And that has really worked well for me because we were able to, to bring Niger into the Security Council and they voted for the first time with us on a really important issue. Um, and I find that my advice, uh, that it, it comes back to you tenfold when you reach out to these countries and just show them, you know, we are the largest donor to the United Nations. Every country I have visited, Americans are, the, we are the light on the hill. And I think it's important to reach out to these countries and build that relationship. And that has worked really well for me. And that is the advice that I have to tell you that I received from George W., from Susan Rice, and from a letter from Samantha Powers. So we can all really work together. I mean, I am sitting here today in proof that, that I have gathered the best from all my predecessors. And uh, yes, we have problems. You know, I told the president uh, when I accepted this job that I want to prove you wrong. We have, there's a lot of critics. I understand the criticism now from being on the inside. There is a lot to be critical about. But for the countries that have no other platform, no other way to reach the world, and if they didn't have it, it would end up costing American taxpayers more. It would end up costing our men and women in the military more. So, therefore, that's why I think it's really important to, to uphold the UN system, to obviously hold it accountable. And, um, like I said, to build upon the past mistakes and to build upon what has worked. Thank you, Ambassador. I, I think that's... Um yeah, and it's worth acknowledging the fact that everything in the Human Rights Council is not bad. There are quite a few things that come out of the Human Rights Council that are worthwhile and worth support. But it should be so much more than it is. And that's the real tragedy, that the Human Rights Council should be a, an objective enforcer of human rights, and it just is not. And it, it's a tragedy not just for us, American taxpayers, who would like to see those principles promoted, but also for our taxpayer dollars who go in to fund the system that's not but it's a, even more of a tragedy for those people around the world whose governments are preying upon them and they look for some kind of, of sympathy and, and acknowledgement in the international system and they're just not getting it. And, but thank you so much for your comments here today. Thank you, Danny, for uh, co-hosting the event with me today and for working on this project with us. And also, uh, just uh, thank you very much for, uh, for spending your time here. I'm, I'm very grateful that you, you have taken on this, this big task. I mean, it is, it is a big task and it is so important because if not us, and if not now, then when? And we don't ever want anyone to say shame, shame on us because that's not what we're about. We're Americans. And that's, at the end of the day, that's really what's important. The hard work. Thank you for the, for the great principles articulated. I hope we can continue this conversation. And thank you, Brett and Heritage, for hosting this. Thanks a lot.